This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is off this week. It's great to have you here with me and the rest of the Fight Back team. A headline in the Star yesterday reads, We're in big trouble. Critical care bed alerts at Toronto General and Toronto Western show a system under strain. On Monday of this week, an internal alert was issued at Toronto General that its ICUs were at capacity and might not have enough staff to keep all critical care beds open. The warning has since been lifted, but that alert is said to have been the third in the last month. In addition, there is now said to be an equivalent alert at Toronto Western Hospital. So this is the backdrop even before we get into flu season and during wave after wave of COVID-19. You'll also remember during the summer, we were learning of closed emergency rooms, 110 in total, at hospitals primarily serving rural areas. And wait times in the ERs, according to Ontario Health, are an average of 21 hours for an inpatient bed. But another report from August says 90% of wait times for an inpatient bed were 33 hours. As always, we want to hear from you if you've experienced a lengthy emergency room wait recently or perhaps have had surgery put off, or maybe you're a hospital worker and can bring some firsthand experience to this situation. Numbers to call, as always, 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Joining us to discuss, Dr. Alan Drummond, emergency physician in Perth, Ontario, and co-chair of Public Affairs for the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians, as well as France Gelina, the Ontario NDP's health critic. Welcome to you both. Thanks so much. Nice to talk to you, Jane. France, before we get into talking about the hospital situation, I understand from Fightback producer Zeev that you were in the Ontario legislature this morning when a number of NDP MPPs got kicked out during debate on the legislation forcing ed workers to stay on the job. Can you help us understand what played out? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, about 20 members of the NDP uh, called out the government for basically lying to the public, for telling, <laughs> for telling lies. You are not allowed in the uh, Legislative Assembly to say that somebody is lying, but they would say, hey, uh, Premier, hey, Minister Lecce, the Minister of Education, uh, you said uh, that uh, you, uh, you want our kids to stay in class, uh, but uh, we are the jurisdiction who kept our kids out of class the longest, 27 weeks, because he didn't want to spend the money. And, and then, um, no, it's not true. It is true. You are lying. And the minute you say you're lying, you're escorted out the door. Uh, so we call them out on a number of lies uh, that they have said uh, to justify taking away the charter rights and freedom of educational workers through Bill 28. They did not like it, and they kicked us out. Okay, so if you are a member of provincial parliament and you say, Mr. Speaker, the, op- the member opposite me is lying, that's automatically a reason to kick you out. You got it. Okay. Uh, then there was a lot of desk banging and so on, what, and, the, and the speaker seemed to be at odds about what to do. <laughs> the, the idea is that when... You know, like, if you know that one of your colleagues is not going to be there anymore, um, the people who sit around him or her uh, support them by clapping or by, or by banging on the desk to say what he's saying is true. He is calling you out, <laughs> Mr. Ford, Mr. Lecce, 
he's calling you out. What he's saying is true, uh, just to kind of keep the morale a bit. No, nobody likes to be escorted out of the legislative assembly, uh, but uh, it's better to, they felt it was better to call them out on their lies uh, than to than to stay there and continue to let them let them die to the lie to the public. France, wondering if you have heard anything about uh, a response from the Ford government to the counter offer from QP, which was apparently presented late last night. So um, I will start by telling you that um, most ninety eight percent of collective agreements are settled by negotiations, and the great majority of them are settled in the last 24 hours before a strike is allowed to um, to take place. Uh, when there's a lot of pressure on both sides, they both end up with a collective agreement that neither side, the government won't like it, QP won't like it, but they can all live with it. <laughs> so uh, this is this is the last 24 hours. They are in a, as long as the bill doesn't go through, they are in a legal strike position as of Friday. Um, so, yes, they are trying to negotiate a deal that uh, they won't like, the government won't like, but they can all live with and avoid a strike. So do you feel optimistic, and we'll get to the hospital situation here in a moment, but do you feel optimistic that both sides will actually sit at that table and avert a province-wide day of protest on Friday? Uh, Right now, no. The answers that we got during question period is that they really want to teach uh, people a lesson uh, that they can use the non-withstanding clause, they can take away their rights if they don't do what the government tell them to do. So we ask many questions. All of those questions ended up with members being escorted out. <laughs> uh, but uh, at the end of the day, um, they are making a uh, an example that they have all the powers, and if you don't listen to them... Um, and, and there was other unions in the in the chamber at the time. OSSTF was there. OPSU was there, uh, representing healthcare worker actually. And uh, they were sending a straight message that if you don't listen to us, we will do that to you also. Okay, we will switch gears and appreciate uh, your recap for us on what happened in the Ontario legislature this morning. And Dr. Drummond, thank you for standing by uh, so we could get no, that no update. Um, no, Fra- no. Francis Jelena, what is your take on the hospital situation in terms of staff burnout, ICU capacity, and ER weights? We have a health human resources crisis right now. The crisis was building for many years. But after the two and a half years of hell that every frontline healthcare worker went through, through the pandemic, uh, they need to feel respected, they need to feel valued, they need to feel supported. None of that is coming, and they are quitting in in huge number. We are at 34,000 vacancies in our hospital. We are at 12,000 vacancies in uh, the community sector, like uh, long-term care, home care, uh, primary care. And uh, to give you an example, we used to have 7,400 members of medical laboratory technologists, like licensed. We're now at 6,200. We lost 1,200 did not renew their license. They are not going back to those working conditions uh, that, that basically are too harsh. Dr. Drummond, it was actually you quoted as saying we're in big trouble in that Toronto Star headline. What are you referencing specifically? Well, I think potentially we're in big trouble, Um for a number of reasons, and uh, I mean the, the phrase "perfect storm" keeps getting rolling around in Ontario healthcare these days, but it's it's actually factually correct. So, so here's the problem um, that I see and that I have been seeing uh, currently clinically uh, in my emergency department. I, I use Perth as a bit of a bellwether to try and understand what's happening elsewhere, and usually it does reflect what's happening elsewhere. And so, what we're seeing is uh, an increased number of COVID patients who need to be admitted to hospital. They they do not have pneumonia, they do not need a ventilator, they do not need an ICU, but they're usually fairly frail 
elderly people uh, who get COVID uh, and can't cope. They can't get out of bed. They feel like they've been hit by a truck. They can't feed themselves. They can't toilet themselves. The family home care is a shambles in Ontario, uh, and their families can't cope. So they end up being brought to the hospital and admitted to an already overcrowded hospital where they will spend routinely a week or two just trying to get their strength and uh, some sense semblance of independence back. Take that, couple that with uh, with uh, influenza. It was a very bad influenza season in Australia. So uh, it 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 if that's what happens in in Canada, coupled with COVID variants uh, and now RSV for children in community hospitals, we have a big in, a burden of infectious disease. We have a government that is literally telling people, you know, the party's on, pandemic is over, take off your masks and enjoy Maple Leaf games, uh, which is exactly the wrong message to send. So we have people who now think it's party time and the pandemic is is finished. They don't need to wear masks anymore. Uh, Coupled with uh, a, a lack of booster immunizations, a lot of people don't feel a need for it. And all of this is going to be piled on to a really fragile healthcare sector, uh, our hospitals are chronically overcrowded, uh, which is why we have crowded emergency departments, which is why ambulances can't offload and can't respond. And so we get all these sick people occupying hospital beds uh, at a time when we have no beds and which at a time when our staffing is really fragile, we could potentially be in big trouble. So the mitigating factors would be get get back on messaging with respect to public health measures that we've all been taught over the last three years. Get both all the COVID boosters that you can, as well as influenza. And hospital uh, administrations, most notably the government, have to open up the wallet uh, to retain the nurses that we are losing. And and, and Ms. Jelena is not incorrect. Uh, we are losing nurses on a daily basis, uh, not only in our emergency department, but also on the wards. And we are losing technicians. So we that doesn't get talked about very often. The ICUs right. seem to get a lot of attention. The ERs get a lot of attention. But the wards are suffering as well. So, yeah, potentially it is going to be big trouble. So, Dr. Drummond, at your hospital there in Perth, when somebody resigns because they can't take it anymore or for whatever reason, there's nobody waiting behind them who, who can take over that job. No, I mean, we're hiring agency nurses at triple uh, triple the hourly wage of a nurse. I mean, I don't, you know, good for them, I guess. But uh, so we're, we're relying heavily on agency nurses. The thing to remember about emergency nursing is that it's not like floor nursing. It's a, it, you're a part of a, a team uh, when we're faced with somebody who comes in with trauma or cardiac arrest. Every member of that team knows their role. And so, you know, if you're lucky enough to bring somebody new in, there's a period of time when they have to be trained and to fit into that team model. And quite frankly, I mean, I'm all for repealing the Bill 124 and and letting nurses get paid appropriately. Uh, I'm all for that. But the trouble is that this is not just about money. This is also about respect. It's about working conditions that are that provide optimal environment for us to provide safe care for our patients. And it's about re- reducing physical and verbal violence in our emergency departments, which is happening all too often. And most hospital administrations uh, pay lip service to, you know, to resolving it. So it's not just money. It's certainly working conditions and respect for our nursing profession. I definitely want to get to your calls. If you've had an experience with a long wait in an emergency room recently, perhaps your surgery has been put off as a result of overcrowded hospitals. Uh, the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-744-740. Of course, Dr. Drummond sees firsthand what's going on. Maybe you're a healthcare worker. Maybe you're a nurse. Uh, we can always appreciate what is better happening in the hospitals if we can hear from somebody who is living it every day. So we'd like to hear from you as well. Uh, France Jelena, uh, the situation with nurses, other hospital workers, what Dr. Drummond was referring to, people leaving the profession. Just recently, there uh, was a new policy announced which will allow more nurses, uh, more immigrant nurses to get into the system. How quickly will that play out? We have always had a um, couple thousand, uh, sometimes uh, up to 10,000, uh, internationally trained uh, nurses and many hundreds of internationally trained physicians that live here in Ontario. And they would very much like to work in our healthcare system. 
the process to get a license, don't get me wrong, I want them to be checked. I want them to make sure that they they know they are uh, have the knowledge that a nurse and a physician should have before they're, they're brought in. But the process is very, very slow. The College of Nurses, as well as the College of Physicians and Surgeons, came to me about five and a half years ago to say, we need a change in regulation in order for us to be able to bring um, those um, internationally trained physicians, nurses, etc. faster. Well, uh, fast forward, this change still has not been made. So some tinkering has happened. And a few of them, I think uh, close to 600 of them, uh, were able to be brought in, but there are still thousands waiting on the sideline, waiting for the government to change the regulations that govern the College of Physicians and Surgeons and the College of Nurses so we can bring them in. Um, we are, everybody's open. Uh, many of them are very qualified, would be very good at the bedside or whatever um, position they choose to do. Uh, the process is still slow. And as long as the government does not change the regulation, it will continue to be slow. As I was mentioning off the top of Fight Back today, um, you'll remember back in the summer when we were hearing about hospitals in more rural areas of Ontario closing their emergency rooms over weekends. Uh, there were apparently 110 in total. Dr. Drummond, now that we're hearing, these are not closures, obviously, of the ICUs and the ERs at Toronto General and Toronto Western, but these internal alerts, as they're called, how worried should we be uh, as starting to see this kind of overcrowding and uh, longer wait times in the big hospitals here in Toronto. So look, let's get real here. Uh, the, the, the reality is uh, that we have had overcrowded hospitals leading to crowded emergency departments for over 25 years. So this is not a new phenomenon. COVID has exposed cracks that have chronically been there. But we have been screaming from the rooftops for the last 20 years. I personally have been screaming that we are hospital. A safe hospital is defined as one with 85% occupancy rates. It allows free flow of admitted patients to the formerly emergency department of the wards. We have, there isn't an Ontario hospital that's seen that level of occupancy in over 20 years. So we're currently often 95, 98% occupied, which means that admitted patients end up being stuck uh, in the emergency department waiting for a bed to become available. Two weeks ago at Credit Valley, and this is almost unbelievable, but it's true, there were 100 patients in the emergency department, in the hallways of the emergency department, waiting to be admitted to the wards. And we know that these so-called boarded patients receive uh, suboptimal care, uh, and they have a higher risk of medical complications, including death. Uh, and they also increase hospital costs. So uh, a, a very typical urban hospital in Toronto, 100 people uh, occupying stretchers and hallways waiting to be seen, which means that people in the waiting room aren't going to be seen unless they're willing to be examined in a toilet. Uh, so this has been going on forever. Uh, forever, uh, successive governments in Ontario have tried to suggest that the reason we have a crowded emergency department is because too many people are going there who could be seen by a nurse practitioner or a family doctor. That is not the truth. The reason is that we have a crowded hospital because we have insufficient bed capacity. And part of the reason for that bed capacity problem is that we have a lot of patients admitted to hospital for months um, who really need to be in a nursing home, but there are no nursing home beds. So it's a, it's a bed capacity problem both at the hospital level uh, and at the community level. And the problem is that uh, we know that crowding kills people. In Australia, they call it granny killing uh, because we know that people who – it's science. There's studies have shown now that if you end up waiting for a prolonged period of time in the emergency department, waiting for a bed to become available on the floor, much higher risk of complications, including death. So people do die unnecessarily. Should you be worried? Uh, the answer is absolutely. I mean, the the cat is out of the bag now. We know that crowded hospitals have existed for a long time, but it's getting quite serious. The closures of rural hospitals, despite what our health minister has said, is in fact representative of a crisis in healthcare in Ontario, uh, and is in fact unprecedented. We have not. I have, I follow emergency department issues have for over twenty years now. Ontario didn't see a closure, I think, since about 2008, and now we've had something like 16 or 17 hospitals close uh, since uh, since uh, uh, Sylvia Jones became health minister. She likes to blame previous governments, but frankly, this is a second-term conservative government now. 
they get to wear this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when a rural hospital closes, that causes a domino effect you know, where patients go elsewhere to crowd other hospitals looking for care. And people feel that their there's so social safety net is being undermined. So yes, closures of rural hospitals, uh, prolonged waits for care, both uh, waiting to be seen initially by a physician or waiting for a bed to be available on the floor is has become, frankly, uh, and truly a crisis and abysmal. I had a patient the other day, three days in my emergency department waiting for a bed to become available. Three days. Uh-huh. Uh, and they don't get the same level of care that they would on a ward. So, you know, it's pretty pathetic. Uh, it's time for something to be done. I know you're engaged by what Dr. Alan Drummond is telling us, um, but I find it hard to believe that the phones aren't ringing with people having had experiences like what Dr. Drummond is referencing with 100 people in the Credit Valley ER recently, uh, with people having to wait more than a day, sometimes two days to get into a bed, if they get into a bed at all. It's really important that we share these stories so that we can understand or, or at least bring uh, a story to uh, what we're reading in the newspaper, what you're hearing on the radio. Again, the numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free, 1-866-740-4740. France Jelena is with us as well, the NDP health critic. Uh, France, uh, you know, how big of a player is COVID in all of this? Like, if we were teetering on the edge before COVID, is it COVID that's put us over the edge effectively? Well, before I answer this, I wanted to tell you, Jane, that a lot of patients will come to me and they don't, they don't want anybody to know their story, but they will share with me that, you know, I brought my dad to the emergency. We, uh, the, uh, on Saturday morning, on Sunday night, he was finally seen and said, yes, he needs to be admitted. And it was not till Thursday till her dad was admitted. But at the same time, they say, the nurses tried so hard. The physicians, they try so hard. I don't want to blame them. I don't want to make them look bad. I saw how hard they were all working. So I'm not surprised that the people don't bring their, their stories forward to the radio because they don't want to blame, blame our healthcare workers. They see how hard they try to help them. It, it's the system as a whole, but it's hard for, for uh, somebody to, to complain. They come to me lots. Not a day goes by that I don't have a horrific story of uh, somebody who either um, had to wait a very long time or the family thinks that the death could have been prevented had there been more resources in the emergency to help them. Uh, I have tons of, of horror stories that happen in, in our hospital system, uh, but it's always the same. The family is still grateful to the people who help them. Right. They're grateful to the physician, and, and they don't want to blame them. Uh, coming back to your uh, question of COVID, I would say what COVID did is show the crack that already existed. I'm from north, northeastern Ontario. The main hospital is Health Sciences North. It's located in Sudbury. Except for when they were not allowed to do surgery, uh, health, our hospital has been at 120% capacity for months and months and years and years on end. In our hospital, there are no TV rooms. There are no end of hallways. There are no shower room. There are no place on the side of, uh, of corridors because they have put beds anywhere they could put them. But we all know that you cannot provide quality care in a hallway. Right. Uh, France, the phones are actually ringing now, so we are going to hear some stories, Dr. Drummond, as well. Let's go to Joe, who is on the QEW. Joe, go ahead, tell us your story. Yeah, hi there. I was in emergency three times this past summer for some strange viral infection. Each time I went in, I was there for at least nine, ten hours, and like the previous caller said, I mean, the nurses and doctors were fantastic. The wait times were not fantastic, and I would be sent home feeling just as badly as I did leaving. They did everything they could, and on the fourth time, I was feeling sick at the end of August. I didn't want to go because I just didn't want to sit there again for 12, 15 hours, nine hours, no. So I ended up going at 3.30 in the morning, midweek, thinking it's not the weekend, so there's not car crashes and drunk driving and all that stuff that may happen on a weekend. So I went midweek, 
and it was just as busy. My my comments are kind of like, uh, I wish we could have the choice to maybe bail out of OHIP and have a private thing so that if you have the means and the money, you can go to a hospital where it's not as crowded with the general population. Okay, well, that's a topic for another day, Joe, but I do appreciate your stories. Thank you for calling. Lisa in Toronto, your emergency room wait time story. Um, I took my, my sister is very sick. She was in McKenzie Health. They had to send her down to Sunnybrook. Uh, we, we got an appointment about two or three weeks later to uh, the Odette Center. Then, then I took her to Emerge. We sat there for eight hours. The next day they send her home. She hasn't been able to keep anything down. I'm trying to make this a long story short. Finally, last Wednesday, we went back to Sunnybrook. They finally admitted her again through Emerge. We bypassed everything because the doctor saw how sick she is. Um, I was also told off by, uh, or uh, I don't know if it was told off, but because she, she was waiting for a biopsy. And the request was put in on October the 14th, but we were not going to get this biopsy till November the 4th. So I was told that I was calling too many times to follow up on this biopsy when it's going to happen. So now finally she is in Emerge. Yeah. And she was in the hall for three days. Wow. Friday night, she finally gets a room upstairs at midnight. These two young um, fellows, doctors, come in and tell her the next day, well, you know, you'll have to go home the next day because we don't have room for the, uh, somebody else needs this bed and you cannot wait here till you're by. And at that time, they did do but the biopsy. They basically told her, no, she cannot go home. Anyway, again, long story short, they... They changed her tune. She's still in the hospital. They found out she has cancer. Oh, I'm sorry. It, it's, a, it's a nightmare. It, it a nightmare. absolutely is. Lisa, thank uh, you. Thank you so much for calling in and sharing your story. Thank okay, you. Thank you. Let's go to Helen in Brampton. Helen, Gina, what would you I'm, like I'm to sorry. add? I, I have oh, to you be... have to go, Franz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm oh. sorry. Hi. No, and I appreciate your time. I'm just going to get the a couple more stories been... and then a final comment from Dr. Drummond. Uh, did you want to say something before you go, Franz? The story that this lady just shared, uh, we I hear all the time, this is not... Uh, this does not meet the expectations of the people in Ontario. We know how to do better. We have respecting the people who work there, uh, realizing that the last two and a half years has been hell would go a long way. They're human beings like you and I. Um, they are demoralized right now. We can um, show them how much we value them, and the government has a role to play. Unfortunately, I have to run. NDP health critic, Frost Jelen, always a pleasure. Thanks for your time. Bye-bye. Helen, uh, we've got Dr. Drummond still on the line, and we're just going to push this topic a few more minutes because now the phones are ringing. Uh, What would you like to add? Uh, hi. Yeah, I, I was. It's very similar comment to the ones that have been made. My sister had a procedure on Monday, and uh, her colon was perforated, and so she had to be kept in uh, Credit Valley uh, Hospital, and uh, they had to put her in the in the hallway. Right. So she is still there. Three days later, she will still be staying until Thursday or Friday. But they put her in the dementia ward. So oh, wow. <laughs> there's people screaming all over the oh, place. No. I was there last night, and, I mean, it's not their fault, and they all need help, and yeah. the nurses are running around. I feel like going to the rooms myself to help them. Uh, my sister had to wait over four hours just to help her to go to the washroom. So the nurses are doing their best. There's no doubt about it, but it is a very sad state. I just wanted to share that experience. Thank you, Helen. Out by the end of the week. Thank you so much. All the best. All the best. Thank you. Bye bye now. Uh, One more here. Uh, Shirley in St. Catharines, your hospital story. Go ahead. Oh, hi. Uh, Yes, I was, it was just before COVID hit and I got E. coli and I was taken by ambulance, and I was in emergency for three days, shifted from various spots, 
and hurrah, they were taking me upstairs. Well, I was in a four-bed ward. I was the fifth bed. My bed was at the window between two bathrooms. I had no TV. I had no radio. I had no... I had nothing. And for a call bell, it was the kind of bell that you have in a hotel at the desk. Mm -hmm. I couldn't reach anyone. And I was there for another four days. Three of the other patients were unfortunately waiting for long-term care homes. I got nothing. Shirley, thank you. It must be difficult to talk about it. Dr. Drummond, just final comments from you. These stories, it sounds like we're in a third world country when you hear these stories. Um, Well, yeah. Uh, I mean, I I, I guess my feeling is this. Uh, Private healthcare has no role in in reducing emergency department wait times. We just need to improve uh, function within the hospital sector. Uh, the focus is on risk by wait times, but the reality of it is that the, the root cause are crowded hospitals. And so the government, this government that seven years ago, six years ago, promised to bring an end to hallway medicine, uh, needs to finally own this problem, not keep blaming, you know, the previous liberal government. They've now been in power for a long time. And the, the, what it really needs to do is uh, get hospital occupancy rates Get bed, give us enough beds in the hospital to look after the surge associated with COVID, but also the fact that our population is aging and not getting any healthier. So bed capacity is the issue. Uh, everything else is just a mitigation strategy. Um, and it's really time. It's really beyond past time. Yeah. How could you not be touched by, you know, the stories we've heard? And these are just representative of, a, you know, Five million people come to Ontario emergency departments on, on an annual basis. Absolutely. And none of them have a positive experience. So we, it's time now to fix it, and certainly before the twindemic arrives this coming December. The twindemic, yes. Your comments have been interesting and insightful. Dr. Drummond, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Dr. Alan Drummond, emergency physician in Perth, Ontario, and co-chair of public affairs for the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians. It is Jane for Libby. We have some breaking news to update you on the education workers situation. Stephen Lecce is saying he is the education minister. He won't negotiate the details of a counter offer from CUPE unless CUPE cancels plans to strike on Friday. Bob Comsick will have more details at one o'clock. And coming up next here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back, if you were listening to the morning Zoom with Sam and Jane this morning, then you heard about the 84-year-old Barry woman denied a van rental due to her age. Ageism certainly sounds like it. We discuss next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is off this week. An 84-year-old Barry woman by the name of Elizabeth Schlarb says she was denied a van rental in Mississauga due to her age. Staff at the car rental company Green Motion apparently told her she could not rent or drive their vehicles because she is too old. Some legal experts say that this move by the company could violate the Ontario Human Rights Code. We will speak with one of those experts momentarily, human rights lawyer Julian Falconer joining us, as well as Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging. Bill, Julian, welcome. Thanks. Thanks very much, Jane. Good afternoon. What do you make of this story, Bill, from a CARP perspective? Well, it's not the first time that we've heard of this sort of happening thing happening with car uh, rental uh, companies. Uh, more, we've heard of it more in from people going to the United States than here in Canada. Uh, we did check with the 
companies that CARP recommends in terms of car rental companies, and both of them assure us that this is not their policy. Uh, but our uh, view of it is uh, sometimes these decisions are made by frontline personnel who are misinterpreting uh, the policy is assuming that a person, uh, because of their age, is not capable of doing something like uh, uh, driving, when certainly they shouldn't be renting to somebody who, to them, is obviously incapable of running the, the vehicle. But we all know uh, 35-year-olds who have bad backs or uh, football injuries who shouldn't be driving a car either. Uh, it's ageism and stereotyping of the of the worst kind, if that's what they're doing. It obviously it does very much sound like that. The company Green Motion, uh, according to Schlarb's lawyer, uh, so the story goes, their policy, uh, it's a UK based rental company. They have franchises worldwide, including two in Canada. And the company's terms and conditions for drivers in Canada include a minimum age of 23 and a maximum age of 80. Is that uh, is that uh, appropriate? Can you set age limits, Julian, uh, for conditions around, in this case, a, a car rental? Well, the simple answer is there is no simple answer, Jane. My apologies. I have to be a weaselly lawyer. <laughs> That's okay. Um, uh, so it is flat-out age discrimination. But sometimes age discrimination is permitted. Uh, so we have to be careful to interpret uh, the conditions based on, on the rationale for them and what options exist for someone uh, uh, of uh, uh, the age group that uh, uh, Miss, uh, and I hope I pronounce her name correctly, Schlarb, Miss Elizabeth Schlarb falls into. So she's 84 years old and taking a look at the terms and conditions that Green Motion, the rental car company, set. They have a maximum age of 80 and a minimum age of 23. And people should know that it's very common that large car rental companies work with minimum ages or um, have surcharges on ages, right? Uh, there's a class action, for example, uh, as we speak, going on in Quebec, where uh, 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 youth, young drivers under the age of 25 uh, are taking uh, car rental companies to court on the basis of surcharges or refusals of service. So I, I, I'm not defending Green Motion by any stretch. I'm simply saying that we have to take a look sort of under the hood, if you will. Mm -hmm. So what are they doing? Well, they're, they're not just proposing to charge a surcharge, because if you go on uh, Green Motion's website, they have a senior driver surcharge, 76 to 80, and they appear to charge $20 per day. But you have a refusal of service, a refusal to contract, um, and they would have to justify that. Now, if it's uh, uh, across the board, completely arbitrary, then my, in my opinion, an argument could be mounted under Section 3 of the Ontario Human Rights Code that actually provides, and I won't be the boring lawyer that reads you out a section of the Human Rights Code. I'll spare you that, okay? <laughs> But okay. uh, it provides that every person uh, has a right to contract on equal terms without discrimination based on, among other things, race, uh, sorry, age. So quite clearly, on its face, it would appear to be discrimination. But then how do they discriminate? Do they discriminate based on a surcharge because they have increased insurance costs? Are they unable to get insurance for someone X age? Uh, all these things matter. And then, of course, where is the province in all this? They license. Uh, uh, someone to drive who's 84, Ms. Schlarb, how does the province say we license it, but they're not fit to get a rental right. car? I mean, it, it, all of this, you know, this does beg questions. And I completely sympathize. Uh, you know, uh, it is very important that people are not denied services when they have talents, qualities, and skills, uh, probably better than somebody in their 40s who's a bad driver. And Julian, you could also make the argument that there's discrimination for those who are between, well, 16 maybe because they're not adults, but say 18 and 22, you could argue ageism discrimination for those individuals. Absolutely. And, and that's in part what that lawsuit in Quebec is about. My only point is, unfortunately, the question, is this discrimination? The answer is blatantly yes. 
But there are permissible forms of discrimination, whether forcing a firefighter to retire at a certain age. I mean, how would I mean no disrespect to anybody, and I shouldn't say things like this, but how would you like to invite an 84-year-old firefighter to go climb to the top of a burning house? I mean, there are certain things many of us can't do anymore, right, just by our physical limitations. So sometimes age uh, differentiation is, is permitted, if that makes sense. But by that same token, if the 84-year-old firefighter can achieve all that is required of a firefighter, never mind the age, uh, isn't that the same as here in the province of Ontario? People, once they turn 80, every two years have to uh, take a form of their driver's license to be able to continue holding on to it. Absolutely, you are correct. And that's where differentiation happens, right? Because they're treated differently. They have to meet different tests. And I'm, I happen to be an aviation pilot. And I can tell you at age 63, they make me do different things than I had to do in my 40s. Ah, such as? A uh, number of tests and uh, ECG. So I have to do electrocardiogram uh, testing because, you know, when you're 63, people and you're at the helm of an airplane, people want to be satisfied you passed a whole bunch of tests they didn't care so much about in your 30s. This seems like a good opportunity to open the phone lines and ask you if you have experienced ageism. Uh, We do have a mature audience here at Zoomer Radio, so thinking more at the top end of the scale, have you experienced ageism? Has somebody treated you in a certain way because of your age? The numbers to call are 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Let's go back over to Bill at CARP, A New Vision of Aging. Bill, how common is ageism? It's very common, and it's unfortunately, it's growing. We're hearing more and more examples uh, of it all the time in uh, in many areas. And, you know, one of the, the problems is this old fallacy that somehow uh, we fall apart when we hit age 65, uh, an age that has, has no scientific basis at all. In fact, the history of it, it was invented by a, 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 a leader who wanted to get rid of his generals. So he said 65 would be the retirement age, and it is stuck for, for decades. And the problem we have now is that people are living longer. They're living better. The, the condition that people are in at the age of 65 is very akin to what it was at 45 or, or 50 a few decades uh, True. ago. So Age is not the, uh, should not be the criteria. It should be the ability to do the task or, or do whatever is uh, expected. Julian, now this woman, Elizabeth Schlarb, she has taken her story to the media. She has hired a lawyer to um, basically fight this rental car company, Green Motion, for not renting her a minivan because she, they say she's too old to rent it. Uh, if somebody were to come to you with the same story, I mean, what kinds of repercussions or, or what would you suggest? Is this a case you would even take on? And what can be won by uh, fighting a case like this? Well, the first the first challenge is for someone pursuing a human rights case is, sadly, Jane, you have to pay to play. So it, it is challenging for people to manage um, what can be very intimidating uh, legal costs. So I raise that to be candid with you that, that, you know, you have to clear that hurdle to be able to hire a lawyer. But uh, I absolutely would uh, entertain and give an, a legal opinion on something like this because off the top, even when you read the coverage in the article, uh, the, the, uh, it's interesting. I note that the uh, quotes of the owner of the franchise, the franchise that dealt with Ms. Schlarb, yeah. um, doesn't actually address the age policy issue. He's extremely vague. He says, we review and update all company policies on a regular basis, including customer service policies. We're always looking for improvements, etc. He makes no reference to explaining why Ms. Schlarb was denied this service, right? Denied the access to the car. And that, that says a lot to me. When somebody isn't able to simply articulate an explanation for what happened and, in fact, frankly, dodges, uh, that tells me that Michelard probably has an interesting case. And, and Green Motion has to ask themselves a question. When I look at other companies, I look at just by going online, we looked at Enterprise. 
Um, they have uh, some uh, limitations on minimum ages. They have no limitation of the nature on the high end in terms of senior citizens. So you have to ask yourself, a large company like Enterprise, uh, do they represent the industry standard? And is, it, is green motion the lone one out there? These are the kinds of things we look at when trying to determine if a case has legal merit. Interesting. Okay, we are getting some phone calls from people who want to share their stories of ageism, and we will get to those right after this quick break. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby's Nimer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. We are talking about the story of an 84-year-old Barry woman who tried to rent a van to drive to New Brunswick to visit her daughter and son-in-law and was denied by this company in Mississauga called Green Motion. This is what she alleges uh, because of her age. We're speaking with Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer, Chief Policy Officer of CARP, a new vision of aging and human rights lawyer, Julian Falconer. We're going to go to the phones now. I asked you before. For the break about uh, if you have a story of ageism, if it's happened to you or someone you know or love. And Deborah from Parkdale has called in to talk about this. Hi, Deborah. Hello there. So what's your story? Well, my friend, she drives her own car from Mississauga about once or twice a week here to Parkdale. And she's 91. And uh, in your opinion, is she a good driver? Yes. Um, Her other problem, though, is her hearing. Okay. And so she seems... That's not really good to drive if you can't hear good either, really. Right. Well, I guess maybe when she goes for her license the next time, maybe that might be an issue. But yes, there are lots of people who are driving into their 90s and are very able and uh, enjoy driving. I remember uh, she's passed now, but my great aunt, Eva, uh, she drove well into her 90s. And she said, all I wanted to do was just go to the drive-thru every day, get a coffee, you know, sit in my car at the park park and 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 watch the the birds and the kids like it was an outing for her it made her feel good again the number 416-360-0740 or 1-866-744-740 bonnie in richmond hill you have an ageism story i do and it's kind of a weird one my husband and i wanted to adopt a cat because our cat had passed away so we were doing a rescue and we went and we saw a cat that we really liked, and we had all these paperwork we had to fill out. We had to give them, and it took almost two months. Um, we had to give them three references, all kinds of stuff. And during that time, we would go almost every day to see the cat so it would get used to us. After two months, they called us and they said, we have good news and we have bad news. The good news is you qualify. The bad news is your age. And I said, Why? And they said, well, what's going to happen to the cat if you die? I said, I haven't even thought of uh, dying yet. I was 60 at the time, and my husband was 65. Oh, and wow. They would not, they would not let us adopt the cat until we got a reference of a friend of ours who was much younger who signed a thing saying that if we died, something happened, he would take the cat and look after it. Bonnie, would, that is a, that's a staggering story. It, it really is. I'm still, like, I'm going to be 65. We have the cat. Yeah. We had him for five Good, good. He's the best, best. I don't even know why he ended up a rescue. He's such a great cat. But I have told so many people that because they're, you always hear they're wanting people to rescue dogs and cats. But it never in my life occurred to me that I would be denied because I was 60. Right, because you're 60. Okay, thank you for yeah. the story. Uh, Julian Falconer, human rights lawyer, what do you make of that story, that 60 is too old to adopt a cat? That's just bizarre, and it's very difficult to, to account for the extreme situations where uh, there there is no rational criteria, and it's just straight uh, ages and discrimination, and, and frankly, somebody sounds not well. It makes no sense. It's arbitrary and, and absurd. Bill, your thoughts on that? 
Well, unfortunately, it, it just underlines the, the point uh, of ageism growing in many, many areas and the kind of ridiculous situations that people find themselves in because of ageism. And I find that, that story to be uh, appalling, but unfortunately, not surprising. Uh, what other kinds of uh, stories do you hear, Bill, uh, among CARP members? Because uh, now that we've opened this Pandora's box, I'm sure yeah. there are many others. Well, I can tell you an incident that happened to uh, to myself. Uh, I was on an, an air an airline, which, by the way, is dealing with this issue. So I'm not going to I'm not going to name them. Uh, but I was sitting in the front row uh, seat where I like to sit beside a. Uh, beside an emergency window and the make a long story short the uh, cabinet attendant made the judgment uh, that I must look of an age that I wouldn't be able to follow the directions uh, in terms of opening the emergency and wouldn't allow me to sit in that seat uh, it ended up uh, I of course took it to the uh, the senior people on the airline, they were appalled. They realized that there was a misinterpretation of the rules in this uh, in this attendance uh, uh, area, and, and they're going to do retraining. And, and actually, CARP is going to help them uh, with their with their staff. Uh, but I can tell you that, uh, as you know, uh, Jane, I'm very fit. I uh, work out uh, every day. Absolutely. I, I, most people don't. Don't even say I look my age, let alone uh, be my age. And I would warrant if the young woman who was sitting beside me uh, and I had had an arm wrestling match, I think I probably could have uh, <laughs> taken her in a, in a two out of three. Uh, so I'm uh, sure. Uh, but here, but this this was a, this is a, is is a case uh, where uh, where it's a misinterpretation of of the rules and somebody assuming that if you're over sixty five, you're elderly. And if you're elderly, you don't have the strength to do anything. And just before we wrap up, Bill, what is the policy for that airline regarding a person's age and whether they can sit in the emergency aisle? Because I like to sit in the emergency aisle, too. Sure, I always have on, on uh, for for all the reasons you and I you and I know. And their their policy is that if if a person uh, is unable to do it, uh, then they can ask them to. But just to assume to look at a person, not even right. ask them right. as most airlines do. So they're they're going to do some some retraining. But it does it does show that it it happens. And by the way, quickly saying the the airline pilots in Canada still have to retire at 65, not because of the Canadian law, but I'm sure Julian can tell you, because the American law, most pilots have to fly over American right. airspace, and they still haven't changed the rule in the States. Julian Falconer, we literally have less than 30 seconds. Just a final thoughts on ageism and how to fight it. Well, uh, I, I think you have to start with uh, acknowledging Bill's uh, supremacy in arm wrestling. <laughs> um, but, but beyond that, uh, I think, unfortunately, it has to be on a case-by-case basis. And you bringing uh, public attention to uh, what this poor soul was put through uh, by Green Motion is an important start. Uh, the answer is, if you feel fit to do something and you're being told you can't because of age, you have to challenge it. Okay. Often it's arbitrary. And, uh, you know, there, there is, there are rules that govern these kinds of deliveries of services, but unless you can test the rules, uh, you're, you're, you're going to be out of luck. Important discussion. Thank you both for your time. Pleasure. Thanks, Jane. Human rights lawyer Julian Falconer and Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating and Chief Policy Officer of CARP, A New Vision of Aging. Jane for Libby, and tomorrow we tune into the town with our municipal panel. But coming up next, Bob Comsick with some breaking news. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.